Welcome to the first episode of A Sort of Young Person's Guide to Prog Rock. I am your host, Ian Price. So we start our story today in 1966 with the Beatles' Revolver. As young musicians, the bands who would go on to make prog were so into the Beatles, so we must go back and understand how it was that the Beatles got interesting. So, without further ado, the Beatles' Revolver. We start our story in 1965, and the Beatles were global megastars at this point. Yada, 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 Beatlemania. But the boys, guitarist George Harrison, drummer Rango Starr, and main songwriters and all-rounders John Lennon and Paul McCartney, were sick of touring. Inspired by Bob Dylan, they went into the studio with the legendary producer George Martin to record songs that were more intricate and more lyrical than their previous Love Me Do's, which resulted in the album Rubber Soul. At this point, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys said, No chance at all, Paul, and produced Pet Sounds, an orchestral pop album which is legendary in its own right. But Paul heard this and said, Did you think I was lying, Brian? And the Beatles boys went back into the studio to create Revolver. They recorded and released Revolver shortly before their last tour, Perhaps sensing that they'd never have to play these songs in noisy, crowded stadiums, they worked on songs packed to the brim with studio experimentation. Spurred on by the number one hits Eleanor Rigby and the jaunty sing-along Yellow Submarine, they made commercial music interesting. This would also include George's Indian music experimentation, Love to You, and John's psychedelic wanderings in Tomorrow Never Knows. And for our story... This album is bursting at the seams with the spirit of experimentation, bringing in chamber music, indie music, backwards tapes, Mellotron, all while maintaining the crispness and catchiness of three-minute songs. For music in general, some of the studio techniques and musical aesthetics they debut on this album will create the standards for what rock sounds like in the studio. So, I probably discovered Eleanor Rigby and Yellow Submarine on Beatles 1, their famous greatest hits compilation. At some point, I added Abbey Road and Sgt. Pepper's to my musical life, but that's where I left it until high school, where, for dumb nerd reasons, my friends and I implemented a Pink Floyd fast. So, in the absence of my true loves, the Floyd, I dove headlong into previously neglected classic rock albums. For whatever reason, I hadn't really explored the Beatles previously, and upon first listen, Revolver was a pleasant enough album. And then, at the very end, Tomorrow Never Knows happened to me. And the hummability of these songs really disguises the groundbreaking nature of this album, but this album definitely rewards many, many listens. So, to listen with me, I am joined today by my friend Nick. Hi, uh, I'm Nick, happy to be here. And my friend, Meng. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Looking forward to this recording. So, I figured it was only wise to start the story of Prague with the Beatles. They yada 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 go on to become absolute megastars this is beatlemania you gotta yada yada through the beginning <laughs> you gotta yada yada just to get to the get to the juice kind of doing some background research on what was the greatest hits of 1965 so a year before this comes out you're looking at basically beach boy songs just real kind of groovy a little doo there's some saxophone but as you very much can hear from this album Music is about to get interesting. And then we get a pretty straight through line through the psychedelic movement, the spirit of experimentation, right on to Prague. So I figured it was just to start here with the Beatles' Revolver. 
So you're saying that Revolver was uh, the twinkle in Prague's eye. Yep. Oh, no. Prague was the twinkle in Revolver's eye. <laughs> Wait, what? I don't know how biology works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just looking at the track list right here, uh, the most standout songs from this album are all very different Beatles songs, like Eleanor Rigby, Yellow Submarine, and Tomorrow Never Knows. All of them extremely different and extremely different from anything the Beatles had ever really done before. And usually you've got your like big pop hit coming off of one of the Beatles albums on every album before this one. And this one's like, okay, like you said, we're experimenting. We're getting crazy with this stuff. There's a track where we don't even play any instruments. And I was going to say, I think that's the the obvious magic to this album and then the obvious magic to the Beatles is that they really just go down the whole gamut of different types of songs. And they'll advance this into an art form with Sgt. Peppers, which we'll talk about next week. But they they don't just do 14 of the same songs. You're absolutely right. This is a it's a wide ranging album. So I'll come to you, Meng. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about this album and where does it sit for you in, in your heart? Uh, it's definitely a great one and i enjoyed listening to it and re-listening to it yeah and i think it is a very wide range and i see like if i listen to other like albums before albums after i see like it, this is a start of something yeah and although like nick said there are very wide range of different factors in it like the indian stuff the uh, psychedelic stuff but nothing really like stands out. No, no, well, nothing really stands oddly out. <laughs> They're great songs, but they fit in the album. I, I would 100% concur. I think the magic and the reason I think this could start the movement is because at the core, it's 14 really nice songs. And then there's a bunch of, of craziness that gets put onto them. But you're right. Like It hangs together really, really beautifully. And it doesn't feel like aggressive with its experimentation. Mm-hmm. So, Nick, where does this sit for you? I love this album so much, and it's very rare uh, for me to have to have this much love for an album and still also have plenty of problems with it. Oh, interesting, yeah. It's not a perfect album, in my opinion. There are very few of those, although that's just all my opinion. It's nothing to say against their skill or whatever. They're obviously amazing from like top to bottom, like everyone at, at Abbey Road Studio, everywhere. That's just me. But um, I'd put it in my Beatles rankings as my second favorite album. I just love this middle period where, in for my taste, I think they peaked. Rubber Soul is my favorite, and then Revolver's right behind it. And I love the Beatles. They're probably my favorite band. Like the fact that I love pizza and the Beatles makes me the most basic man in America. But hey, <laughs> I'm happy to live there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think the the other thing that makes this such a lovable album for me, I think it's because the recording techniques they start, so having a lot of sounds on an album, kind of the really full double-tracked sound, which we'll talk about, and then the way they mic'd the drums, which I don't know the full technical details of, but I think it's very obvious to me that this sounds like like rock music will sound for a good 10 years and beyond. Like, it sounds like they've come into the studio and they've almost invented studio recording. Mm. And so I think I'm trained now to love this sound, kind of like nice and compression-y, like very close, but also lots of stuff going on. I think I'm just used to this sound. And, and so this 
album, what are we on, 60 years later, 70 years later? I'll do the math later, but still sounds fantastic. So I, I wish Ed was here because he's very knowledgeable about the recording process. And I believe this was around the time where they were mastering the, it was the four track and the eight track was about to be invented a few years later. Pretty, pretty concurrently with this, but yes, this is all on four track. So that means they'd be combining tracks and bouncing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, this is like the maximum amount of mastery you can have with that kind of recording tool. I would say for me, the two stories of Revolver that I guess we'll, we'll, we'll get through is obviously there's a technical production technique side, which I, I will touch on song to song, I'm sure. But I think overall, I'd say this is the spirit of experimentation that the, the Beatles are going to hone throughout, as you say, this transition period. And, and I think that will just lead us very nicely into, into Prague. So we, we start here with, with Revolver. Do you guys have any other general thoughts for for me, like before I started re-listening to this album, I was listening to a lot of more heavier, angrier okay. stuff. Yeah. And this album, when I listen to it again, out of a lot of other things, it's just like, oh, cute. Like yeah. genuinely, <laughs> it's an adorable album. And I think <laughs> the, yeah. the, yeah, the, and at, at that day and age, the 60s, trying to experiment in this many different sounds, it's very brave of them. I, I don't think nowadays that like, any bands would have the um, audacity to <laughs> try this many things. And I think it's because, uh, of course, it, like, they're tired from the touring, but I think the touring, the Beatlemania also gives them enough confidence and they feel comfortable in the studio, play around, try things out. So I think that is very, it's very positive, it's very encouraging to listen to and try different themes. Because they had, they had started to get this confidence in Rubber Soul, and then the Beach Boys recorded Pet Sounds, which we'll talk about in a future episode, which of course was a, an experimental pop masterpiece. But you're absolutely right. I think, I don't know if even now, I don't know how many people are brave enough to really push the boat out this hard. And I think like that's one of the most amazing things about the Beatles for me is, uh, I guess we've talked about the diversity of their music. Um, I feel like there's so many artists now who have become, you know, you're like a, a a psych rocker or you're an indie rocker or whatever. And the idea that you do like a weird pseudo Indian jam, an actual Indian jam, the orchestral, whatever, a children's song. I can't believe that every song is so different on these albums. Yeah. And, and that the Beatles did them all with confidence and frankly, just nailed them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think actually this is the upper echelon of bands. And I'm thinking here like Queen, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd. I think yeah. the thing is that they, they do a lot of styles that are still recognizably of them. You know, unlike ACDC, who did the same song 40 times. And that's fine. Like, I, I love that one song. <laughs> uh, so uh, you you uh, just brought up some interesting points that, yeah, like, the Beatles have this rare talent that uh, no matter what they do, that they all make it sound like it's their song, yeah. um, no matter what. However, that sort of ambition that they have in this album becomes a problem for me personally a little bit at times because I'm such a when it comes to music I just love continuity 
And what's mm. interesting about this album is it still feels like a complete work, even though everything is scattershot. And I think that's why I keep coming back to it. Even if I'm like, wow, this song is just way different than the song before it, but it's still great because like, I love the Beatles and everything is still very much of the Beatles on this album. So my little gripes with things are so minor uh, in the grand scheme of it all. more It's more of a continuity thing. Yeah, it's more of like, oh man, like, like here goes Ringo off on one of his crazy adventures. Um, well, actually... And I, I love the Beatles for, al- for allowing him yeah. to do that, even if I am not as... I would not be as open to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if it was my music, here I am comparing myself to the Beatles, a guy sitting in his office right now. Not being the Beatles. <laughs> not being the Beatles. I think there are... <laughs> Seven billion people out there that could say that. Like Monday morning quarterbacking here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Come on, Beatles, do something better. Picking up on that point that there's a lot of stuff whizzing around here. I will say one of the most amazing things about this album and why I think this is probably, whilst not my personal favorite of the Beatles albums, I think this is the Beatles' best album. Like this is their dark side for sure. And the reason I think it is is I think you have absolutely everything that the Beatles had. You've got a, a Ringo fun song. You've got Ringo's drums. Uh, you've got John Lennon getting spiritual. You've got Paul's slice of life jaunty tunes. And you have actually three pretty good George songs. And I actually think this is like the, the, the Whitman's sampler pack of Beatles flavors. I'll reveal my full hand at the very, very end here, but this album does feel more like a fun mixtape than a unified album. And I guess the comparison I'll let you have in your mind for this album is Sgt. Pepper's, where it's the Paul show. And I'll elaborate on that more in the Sgt. Pepper's episode, but I very much feel like Sgt. Pepper's is the first concept album, but it's Paul's concept and Paul's execution. Whereas this, I feel like everyone was there and everyone did a thing. And so I feel like there's lots of little magic moments from the other three that will be lacking in Sgt. Pepper's, definitely lacking in Magical Mystery Tour, and then will come back a little bit in the White Album. Did anyone else have any other general thoughts? Well, well yeah, it's just I'm also comparing uh, Beatles with other bands I've been listening to. And yeah, I mean, they were only active for like eight years. And they're so productive, and they're transitioning like several times in the, <laughs> within yeah. this eight years. And yeah, nowadays people take eight years or even more to make an album. <laughs> and I think that's frankly testament to Paul and George Martin, their their legendary producer. I mm-hmm. just feel like Paul had that engine to come up with songs, and obviously John and George are geniuses in their own right and contributed magical bits but i feel like paul was just going and going and going yeah he's still going now he's still going now. <laughs> yeah. so if i could make a uh, a quick um just sort of i guess analogy to uh sitcoms american sitcoms the beatles were making sitcoms when they used to have to do 24 episodes in a season and think of all of the sitcoms that were amazing at doing that there were very few of them there were a lot of them but only a very few of them did it really well. I had a full 24 episodes. And then now we're in an age where it's like, you've got 12 episode seasons. 
they're really milking the most they can out of those 12 episodes. And uh, maybe that's kind of what Prague did a little bit. It's a different type of thing. But I think like you go from two albums a year with the Beatles down to one album a year and only three songs with Prague. Right, yeah. <laughs> okay, so without further ado then, we start Revolver. And we start with a George song, Taxman. So George has three songs on this. One, which we'll get to at the end, is just a, a nice normal song. But he has Taxman and then Love to You, which seem to be very much on planet Earth. And then the other one is very much in the metaphysical realm. And I, I have always secretly loved that, that Eastern wisdom George going off on a, on a journey of self-discovery wrote Taxman. So I guess the the quick little background about Taxman is that in mid-60s Britain on through the 70s, and this actually will be a story in classic rock music, is that the British government put an extremely high tax on high earners, which is why later lots of the bands will go on this quote-unquote tax holiday where they go record an album in France or Switzerland, which is, for instance, what the Rolling Stones did. So if you could be non-resident in Britain, you would get this tax break, or you wouldn't have to pay British taxes. Uh, so this is Georgia screaming to the void about paying taxes. Hit me up. What do we feel about taxes? So this, I, I'm, I'm conflicted about this song, because as much as I love this album, I don't think it is the best song to lead with. It's a little harsh. The rest of the songs are very fluid and flowy, and this one's like very choppy and uh, poignant. Yeah, I mean the Beatles album construction. I you know I don't think "Drive My Car" is the best song to lead off "Rubber Soul," but you know that's these are all my opinions. Of course. I was about so I was about to say I feel like because it's "Drive My Car" and then later it's "Birthday," isn't it? They're like all the same song, and actually it's it's the same thing with "Magical Mystery Tour" and uh, "Sergeant Pepper's," which are obviously designed to be intro songs. Sergeant Pepper sounds great as an intro song. And yeah. out of those five albums you just listed, that's the only one that I really feel good about as a lead-off song. But this is all... You're happy with the lead-off song. These are, these are my opinions here. Uh, I told you I had opinions before we started recording this. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this is like the first time the Beatles got preachy. And I know, I know um, our musical styles, Ian, is like we, we want to avoid that. In, in a lot of ways. I know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a topical music guy. On the other hand, I love that they're al it's almost like uh, a concept song because nothing is uh, more present than death and taxes. So, like, the tax man's always going to be there. So this song always applies. Yeah. At least in, in the society that we live in now. It's like a, it's one of the only universal truths. And so therefore this song has everlasting life almost because anyone can relate to it. That's so weird. That's such like, it's such an earthly concerns song, but you're right. <laughs> like it will forever have this universal resonance. Yeah. Eleanor Rigby was paying taxes before she died. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Death and taxes. Uh, death and taxes. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, no, I honestly had never thought about that. I'm I'm fine with it as the opener. You're right, it's probably not the strongest song in the bunch. That being said, I, I really don't know what I would have put as the opener. Got to Get You Into My Life would be a great start to the album. Ooh. Oh, yeah. 
yeah. It's punchy, yeah. Yeah, Mang, do you have thoughts about tax mans? I don't know. It's too uh, adult stuff. Yeah, it's too much. <laughs> too, too adult of a song. No, I, I will say this is the credit to the Beatles that such a boring subject could be such a groovy song. I, I can hum it, and I'm grooving along, and uh, it doesn't. It also doesn't feel that preachy. Yeah, and again, they're brave enough to to like put this in songs they know yeah. millions of people listen to it including those politicians who collect taxes i mean not everyone have the have the balls to do that and i feel like this is kind of again what we're starting with is the you know saying the legend of revolver for me is that there's the all of the bits of the beatles are represented here so i'm i'm touched that they t- started off the album with george because he's up until this point been very underrepresented George is about to have his day, though. Oh, he will. I feel like this is where George really takes off. So we've come to Eleanor Rigby, which is Paul's very poetical song about lonely people. And it was funny because I was listening to the song and I, I, I was making notes. And I was like, oh, I, I got it. This song's about loneliness. And I was patting myself on the back and I was like, it's kind of actually the chorus. <laughs> I was like, God, I cracked what the song's about. It's about lonely people. (laughs) And I was like, oh, you're such an idiot, Ian. But uh, (laughs) so Nick and I went on the Fab Four taxi tour in Liverpool. And we went to the grave site, which is right next to the church where Paul and John met at a village fete back in the day. It's part of the Beatles back lore. And as they were children, they would have hung out a lot in this gravesite, and all of the characters are there. So you've got Father Mackenzie and Eleanor Rigby. They are gravestones in this in this in the graveyard. So Paul says that that's not where he got any of them. He invented them from somewhere else. But it doesn't matter. I think it just like it absolutely nails what Paul's going to do quite a bit with the slice of life, just little English stories. And this is Beatles storytelling maybe at its best, because yeah. uh, when you tell a story in music, you don't need to have a beginning, middle, of an, and an end. You need to, uh, but you do need to evoke a feeling. And this song nails it almost as good as any storytelling song you can get. It's very lonely. It's one of the reasons why it's one of the biggest songs on this album in terms of listened to by most people, because it, it really nails that feeling. And, and I, I think this is, again, a George Martin tour de force because he mm-hmm. recorded, I think he recorded two four-piece chamber quartets, which are the strings, and then obviously doubled them. So you have chamber octets, and you have just this melancholic string section behind Paul. So this has no Beatles besides Paul, but to everyone's credit, I don't know where the others would have fit in, and it would have been very weird to have any other instruments. I think this is just so perfectly done. Yeah. I think uh, quite a few songs have very abrupt endings. I mean, this one is slightly better, but like it gives you some some space and time to think. Like what you just listen to and to reflect how lonely you are, <laughs> how lonely everyone is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I actually do find that interesting that that's where Paul's mind was. That he was obviously thinking back wherever he was thinking to. He's thinking back to Liverpool. I, I think he says that this is about an old lady he used to know back when he was a youngster, like an old lady on a street, and he was thinking about her. 
So obviously we're in the height of Beatles fame and he's thinking back to Liverpool and think about how lonely people are in general. But I wonder if that's a, you know, maybe that was just where their mind was at or where Paul's mind was at. Uh, what I was going to say is the only other song that I can think of that really captures like the emotional social, social distance is a song that we'll be covering in a future episode, which is us and them. Uh, nice. Yep. Like the breath, the breaths between us and them. I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about that. I know you have a strong affinity for that song as well. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, I, and just the subject matter is something that just like taxes, like everyone deals with, you know, and at some point in their life or another. So it's very relatable. Yeah. I I was, I was wondering, are they the first people that bring strings to, to prog rock or rock in general? So it's interesting. I think that there was a generation before them that would have been orchestral pop. So like Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra. I bet they were the first of the quote unquote cool young kids who brought that back. And you think about like Paul keeps going back to music halls in the 1920s. Like that's his, like just something he keeps bringing up musically speaking. So I bet it would have been shocking that the hot young things of, you know, 60s pop would be going back to this kind of like old crooner style. And, but, and then also like you think about yesterday is kind of this same vibe where it's Paul singing with just a little bit of string accompaniment. So yes, this would have, this would have been surprising. Uh, before we move on to I'm Only Sleeping, I did some digging because I've heard some rumors that this song, like each one of them wrote a different verse which I have come to realize was not true. Uh, but while I was digging for that, I did find some spicy gossip oh boy. about uh, that uh, John Lennon, throughout his life, he claimed more of a writing role in this song. And then it's one of the only two songs that Paul and John have ever disagreed about over writing credits. Interesting. The other one is on Rubber Soul. It's In My Life, which... Oh, I, interesting. I, yep. it's heart, that's, heart, that's heartbreaking to me because that's one of my favorite Beatles songs. It's the song I use to check to see if my guitar's in tune. I, I see, I, just as a sidebar, that seems like a really dangerous song. <laughs> it's because it's got like 8,000 yeah. different chords. Uh, I, I, I use the riff because it uses all the strings. Yeah, it uses all the strings. I'm surprised because also John never seems like a sentimentalist in this, that, like that he'd even want his name attached to this. Because he's never he's never did any of these types of songs. It, it's just so obviously a Paul song to me. But yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, it's bizarre. I'm taking I'm taking it from a a deep Wikipedia wormhole. So hopefully <laughs> okay. I am not spouting. I'm, I'm hopefully I'm not spouting ignorance right now. So probably by the time you hear this, we fact checked this. So don't add us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Any other thoughts on Eleanor Rigby before we strum the guitar into I'm Only Sleeping? Done. So this is Lennon's first showing on the album. This is just, frankly, for me, Lennon at his best. And then we'll talk about the innovation on this song, probably our first of the innovations, besides maybe a string quartet, the reverse guitar. So the Beatles, at some point, just quite simply i think just flipped the <laughs> flipped the tape and played the uh played the song and then recorded the guitar and then flipped it back and the guitar's reversed it's funny because it's such a simple concept but it sounds so cool uh the the reverse tape loop was actually pioneered by 
French artists in uh, the 1940s, uh, part of a movement called Music Concrete or Music Concrete, where the music is not pleasurable to listen to in any way, <laughs> but by design. I think they were me- they were trying to evoke a feeling of not of displeasure almost. So the technique had been around for a while, but it had never been showcased in a pop sense. And uh, this must have been the first like worldwide debut of the reverse sound. Like it's so listenable. Yeah, yeah. And and we'll we'll talk about this in a second, but the amount of extra noise, like not just four guys playing a song, the amount of extra noise that this album has. I do actually have a real quick music concrete story. Oh, go for it. So Ryan, who you will all be hearing from later, and Brian, who you will all be hearing from later, we all went to university together. And uh, f- the first month of university, they were handing out flyers for like, oh, composers showcase down at the old music hall at a university. So we we waddled down there, and I was like, oh, this is going to be so cool. It's going to be like young composers composing cool stuff. And it was just endless modern music. And I got the giggles real hard. And it was just one of those because it was like the first thing was just like a trio of violins where they were just squeaking. And it was just this, it was so outrageous that I started laughing then. And then we came to the, (laughs) even like 10 years later, I can't think of it, the uh, piano solo. And he was just playing completely random notes as far as I could tell. But there was still a woman flipping the page. <laughs> so so I was there and I was just like like holding it in and I was just like, Jesus Christ, this is the funniest shit I've ever heard. Yeah. Oh my so god. They had a guy who had invented a new instrument. It was like kind of like a Zelda Ocarina, and every time he blew, he had like a row of speakers behind him. So he'd blow, it was a little ocarina sound, it would go boop. And then the sound of bubbles would float across the stage. So it was about a good 10-minute song of him going boop, and then boop, So anyway, so I had the giggles real hard at this point, and then Brian and Ryan, they start laughing too. And then I was like, you guys, seriously, there's going to be like friends and family in the audience, and we don't want to look like dickheads, so we have to <laughs> seriously keep it in our pants here. So I'm sitting there just like holding it in, and then I just full 100% just fall asleep. <laughs> And then uh, because I had been uh, such a such a little rule follower, <laughs> Brian just punched my arm out from under me, and I very <laughs> loudly like woke back up with a jolt. And that was my one and only paying customer experience of music concrete. So God bless them. That that's what you get for being open minded, Ian. I vowed <laughs> never to try new music again. <laughs> oh dear. I think Beatles was not aiming to play this revolver live ever. Yes. And I wonder if deep in their hearts, because it was two months after they released Revolver that they stopped touring. But I wonder if they just knew in their hearts, nah, we're not going to do Love Me Do again. Like, it's done. That's that. Like, I think stuff like the reverse guitar is just this ear candy that makes this a very fun album at all points to listen to. So that's my feeling about I'm Only Sleeping. Yeah, this is a great John song because um, it really captures like the uh, the resting state of John. Because we all know yep. like manic happy John, 
uh, joking around John. And this is sort of like, oh, this is the other side of John. He he likes la- lazing around. But I, while I was researching the song, I thought it was interesting that the song isn't actually so much about drug-induced u- euphoria as, like, John just literally just, like, sleeping. Yeah. He, it's not about being high. <laughs> well, it makes sense. And what I was gonna say, I, I, I genuinely had, I had actually never gotten that this was a an, an, an entendre song. I actually was just like, he must have been spiritually exhausted after the, you know, the madness they'd been enduring for four years or whatever. So we've had some George, we've had some Paul, we've had some John, and now we're back to George with a strong, strong, strong song or strong showing. Love to You, his first, I think his first real Indian jam. So they had used sitar on Norwegian wood, famously. And I think George had just been getting really into the type of music. And he was even quoted as saying something to the effect of like, y'all don't even know, like, this is the music of the future. Something, Something to that effect. Yeah, this is definitely the first attempt to emulate non-Western style music uh, and try and sell that to the uh, Western market because, yeah, this is this is quite ambitious for the Beatles to attempt um, at this stage of their career. And and I think it was the that the structure of the song is a lot more like an Indian raga, which I'm not familiar with at all. Is there is there a Cliff Notes version? Yes. So basically, there is a whole world that I I absolutely bet George didn't really capture because like Ravi Shankar's actual ragas are like 10, 20 minutes. Like they're long. Prague. The, well, exactly. No, and I think there's a whole world, so it is a, a different way of doing something. And I think it's where you set up the the mode you're going to be in. So you set that up. And then you start adding in instrumentation and whatever. Unlike the Beatles songs where you modulate between keys, you obviously can't because you set up a drone at the beginning. Then you play around, get us all used to the notes you're going to be playing, and then you go off on wild experimentation. So obviously this is a three-minute verse-chorus type of song, but obviously he's brought the flavor in. So I think there's obviously there's a lot of complicated compositional and, and, and improvisational rules that Hindustani classical music sets, the northern Indian classical music, will have. And I'm sure George was learning them. He seemed to really, really care about this stuff. So he had been playing with the Asian Music Circle, a group in London dedicated to playing this music, I guess. And then they joined him on this, this track. I have this weird feeling about this song. I don't know if to love it or hate it. <laughs> oh, it's that divided, head. even within yourself. Go on. On one hand, it's like, oh, it's it's interesting. Uh, it's very brave of him to to put this passion of his that probably won't work in his music. Yeah, yeah, and then somehow, like after you listen to it more times together with other songs, and it seems to mild it down a little bit. <laughs> but still, like it gives me the feeling that. But it's like what Brits did with the spices. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they took it on and, and yeah, and and then merged it. To yogurt. Pour, yeah, poured it on on fish and chips and selling yeah. to the locals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'll 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 give that to you. I 
don't know if I love the song, but I love the vibes again. Like I, I love the soundscape he's created. Yeah. I, I would agree. Like it's an interesting tension for me that it's both a verse chorus song. And uh, like, honestly, I have genuinely listened to a lot of Ravi Shankar. It doesn't sound that off. I'm actually surprised with how close he got it. And I think obviously because he's brought the actual musicians in, I don't think he tried yeah. to just do it himself. Yeah. And this sounds a lot more Indian than the Nor- Norwegian would. No, and I think Norwegian would, and then like Paint It Black by the Rolling Stones, obviously they'll have just dropped in a sitar because it's a great sounding instrument. Yeah. I think this one he really tried to, uh-huh. to the style. And I think you maintain that drone you know, he's not singing classical melody lines. So I think, God bless you, George, he was really trying. <laughs> yeah, trying is a word, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I um, I am in agreement with both of you uh, to say that this one doesn't really do it for me. It's a, it's a really interesting attempt. And it's one of the things that kind of bumps me a little bit because uh, it throws off the continuity of the album. But that's also one of the things this album is fun for, so it's kind of hard to fully lean into that uh, take. But uh, this song is kind of uh, it captures the whole counterculture movement that's to follow. It's like make love all day long, make love singing songs to this sort of like smooth Indian. Uh, you could just sit in a circle and play this song and have a thousand people on bongos. You know, we're going into the summer of '67, basically. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you can just see where this is all going. So, as I said before, I think the funny thing about this is that this is the second one. So, we had earthly concerns in Taxman, and then uh, spiritual enlightenment in this song. Like, I think he really is trying to to sing a song. It's got a very clear message. I'll give him props for that. <laughs> yeah. Was he high when he was... Because the Taxman songs sound much more sober than this one. I don't know if Paul had yet done an LSD, but this is now the Beatles LSD album where they're all at very least expanding their minds with all the whatever going on around them. And then I also think they are very much enjoying marijuana. And then also I think they are just off of the fumes of beat poetry. So Rubber Soul is their beat poet album, kind of the world in which Bob Dylan comes out of. So they're trying to sing about songs more than just I want to hold your hand. They're trying to sing about bigger themes, I guess. So they're very much in that phase where they're expanding their mind chemically and poetically. So we come down back to Earth pretty hard with uh, Here, There, and Everywhere. So a quick little factoid about the song. Kind of famously, this album is a response to the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, which, as I mentioned, was like an orchestral pop masterpiece, which we'll cover later. But Paul specifically, when pressed to give an answer, says his favorite songs, God Only Knows. This song is a direct response to God Only Knows. And this is his favorite of his songs. Uh, One thing that I wrote down in my notes is like, Here, There, and Everywhere is one of the best song titles in the entire Beatles collection. Yeah. Regardless of what you think about the song, I'd say like maybe one of the best song titles ever. It's because it's so, it's just so. applicable you could really write a song about anything actually almost to your point there i think the magic of the song is it also has kind of that universal tinge to it obviously it's a a song about just 
I guess feeling good. Yeah. It's kind of just like there's 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 good good things going on all around me or something like that. And it's here, there, and it's everywhere. Like it's literally like there's good things and they are absolutely everywhere in every capacity at all times. And I think to that point it it really it captures a, a universal delightfulness. Well, it seems like he's almost trying to capture a moment. Oh yeah. So the second great hit off of this album after Eleanor Rigby is The Yellow Submarine. I guess a, a real quick background about the song. So Paul talked about the sense of ridiculous English wordplay in the style of like Edward Lear and Lewis Carroll and whatever. So there was kind of that going on there. Also, he grew up in Liverpool, which is a, you know, a famous port town. So there would have been, if not submarines, the concept of, of the open sea. But I think it's interesting because I think, obviously, again, we come back to them stopping the touring. They've both been in a spiritual submarine. They've been locked in like hotel rooms and planes and limousines with each other, stuck all the time, just them in this capsule, staring out at the adventures of the Sea of Green. And it's funny, as soon as Paul says Sea of Green, like... I, that's just one of those lyrics where it's it's what three words, and I, I look out at the sea of green. And I'm like, oh god damn, I want to go there. Like I want to go on that adventure, and it's it's funny how he evokes that sense of like I, I got to get out there. So I think they've kind of got all of those playing around with this, but they bring it together in just this really pleasant, childish song with Ringo singing. Like all of the the deep metaphysical stuff there doesn't matter. <laughs> this is just a great song. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that you could apply such a apt metaphor to the submarine because the whole time I've just sort of considered this song just kind of a silly, silly song. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of makes me think about the song in a different way when you put it that way. So I always just kind of wrote this one off as like, oh, yeah, it's, it's just the Beatles having fun. Yeah. They're just having fun, fun around the house. Uh, you know, this one bumps me for continuity, too. But again, that's just me. Um, Ringo's gonna Ringo, but this is Ringo's like defining Ringo song. And I personally think he nails it as a singer. I think he nails the song. Mm. Well, I thought that this song was written by McCartney. Yeah, so this song is written by McCartney. Yeah, and the song by Ringo, right? So on on every album, obviously, they just give him a song to sing. Uh. I guess I'll put this to both of you. How do you feel about it as a song? Yeah, it's just, it's catchy. It, everybody needs one song like that. Oh, yeah. It, it's silly or whatnot. To, yeah, it catches people's attention, and it's a sing-along for live shows. And, and I'll, I'll, well, and I'll give you, actually, kind of two, two little pet theories I have. So the first is why the Beatles made it then. What is it about 1962 where it's time for the Beatles to really take off? And I think, obviously, uh, we probably have less of a concept of it in America, but, like, Britain and Europe would have been physically battered by World War II. Stuff would have been bad. They're still in rationing. Like, it's not a happy country to be in. And I think then they, they got some combination of, like, austerity, rationing, rebuilding their cities, and then the enforced boringness of the 50s. So I think when the Beatles come along in 1962, and then all the way up through these kind of like weird and wonderful tales that they sang like Yellow Submarine, I think, imagine how fun this would have been. Like, Liverpool, even now, is a pretty dark and gloomy city. And actually, it's a very fun and beautiful city. I'm going to give big props to Liverpool. I enjoyed my time there. But 
as like you could imagine right after like it's it's only 15 years after world war ii you know they're from mostly working class ish backgrounds i can't imagine liverpool was a, a a bag of fun nor the rest of england nor indeed the rest of europe and i feel like the the world was just waiting for fun again not sadness in world war ii and not the 50s they're looking for a little bit of fun i think america was getting their yucks in in the 50s they were having fun yeah well and then i guess that's kind of what the beatles would be responding to is that chuck berry and whatnot right like rock uh-huh. and roll starting to take off in the 50s in america and i bet they got all these albums in and like oh my goodness the americans are having so much fun like they're surfing they're in their hot rods they're dancing what are we doing yeah. they're dancing like and here we are in Liverpool, just like looking at rubble and rationing food. Like this sucks. And so I imagine just that sense of like delightfulness that the Beatles kind of brought to popular music was probably just this balm. And really, they're the one and only band throughout their ca- catalog could get away with having a song like this because it's in essence like a children's song. Yeah. And we come then to the next theory I have as to why the Beatles have this longevity. And that's because they have these children's songs. It's funny, I didn't know that Yellow Submarine was by the Beatles because it had been in, like, I don't know, basically Kids Bop. Whereas, like, it was almost a folk song. I just knew the Yellow Submarine, and uh, I Am the Walrus was the other one I just knew. And then uh, kind of, you know, age 10 or whatever, I heard, like, Paperback Writer or Day Tripper or whatever. And again, they're kind of fun and bouncy, kind of childlike. And then later you can get Tomorrow Never Knows and come together and get all grungy. They do have a lot of depth in terms of age appeal. And I was going to say, I think they because they had this, and I think you're, you're hooked. You're like, oh yeah, there's that one band that I don't, I don't even know their names yet. But man, they just have these little, like, smooth little ditties. This is me talking when I'm eight. <laughs> you were talking all jazzy <laughs> even when you were eight. Uh, So I do have a funny story about this before we move on. So a long time ago, uh, I was probably in my early teens. I was doing something very American, which was driving to upstate New York with my grandfather to go to the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. Very good. Um, And I was packed in the back of a car. We were caravanning with a couple people. And, you know, I wanted to like ride with my grandparents and I brought some CDs and one of them happened to be a Beatles CD. And that's when I found out that my grandparents didn't like the Beatles, which makes a lot of sense because they were born in the 30s. Uh, they probably had no idea what to do about this American counterculture. My grandfather was uh, Air Force. He finished out his career as a colonel. So he was a very no-nonsense guy. But he did have a sense of like childlike wonder a little bit. And I think that's why... One of the most awkward uh, moments in a car ride I've ever had with him uh, was I put on the Beatles album and they tolerated it uh, on this ride. And then it came around to like, oh, we don't actually really like this music. And then he said, but the that song Yellow Submarine. And before he could finish his line, I was like, oh, yeah, I don't really like that song. And he was like, oh. That's my favorite Beatles song. And the awkward <laughs> silence that emanated throughout the car after that oh. was. A moment I'll always remember. Interforce's rivalry, though. Yeah, (laughs) right, yeah. Yeah. So that was the first part of The Beatles' Revolver. I have been your host, Ian Prize, and this has been a sort of young person's guide to prog rock. 
Do follow us on Instagram at progfrogpod. If you have any longer thoughts, queries, opinions, hit us up at helloprogfrog at gmail.com. So that's where we'll leave it today, in a sea of green. But join us next week for part two of Revolver on a sort of young person's guide to progress.